Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. Good to see all of you today. So thankful to be back with you this Sunday and to be starting something new. Uh, If it's your first time with us today, I got news for you. This is... uh, Perhaps a sermon that's very unusual from what we normally do. We, we've kind of created a habit over the last few years of taking on an Old Testament book in the spring, a New Testament book in the fall, and then all throughout there preaching on many various topics that the, the Lord really needs to speak to us about. But for several years, we've been outlining and thinking about this book, Judges. <laughs> and for several years, we've been looking at it and going, uh, maybe not this year. And going, ooh, do we really want to try that? And this year, we, we finally made the decision, all right, let's pull the trigger. Let's give it a go. The book of Judges, 21 chapters in 12 weeks. And so it's going to be a bit of a fire hydrant, a bit of a just me firing things at you. But I'm trusting the Lord on, on this sermon that there's a reason it's in the Bible. There's a reason that he made very careful that this information was kept for us for centuries, for thousands of years, actually. And the book's name is based on the type of people that God raised up during Israel's period of of entering the Promised Land. And there's a lot of oppression. There's a lot of violence. This book is absolutely chaos. I'm not going to lie to you. This book is perhaps, I would argue, maybe the most violent book in the whole Bible. It is complete madness. And yet God, I think, has really obvious things to teach us in this book. So these judges, we're going to read about them over the next several weeks together. Judges chapter 2 describes, them, describes it this way. In, in verse 18 it says, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of all those who afflicted and oppressed them. So this is what we're going to get for the next 12 weeks together is God raising up a judge, the judge dies, the people fall back into complete sin and chaos, and then God raises up another judge. It's, it's a story worth telling and also, I think, something so valuable for us today. So I think it's going to be obvious to you. Now, when you picture these judges, I don't want you to picture what we picture when we think of judges, the black robes. Maybe you even go like way back to the wigs, the white wigs kind of judge. Uh, It's none of that. It's not gavel. It's not that. These are more like warrior chieftains, if you will. These judges are, are, are leading Israel often to battle, and there's a lot of bloodshed. This is what the judges are generally doing because God has commanded them to take the promised land, and in a lot of ways, they've lost heart. So that's what the judges are supposed to be doing. Now, we're going to find out. Boy, they just get worse and worse. And point, I think, the big picture of it all is to point to the fact that we need a perfect judge. We need it so bad. And that's what the Old Testament tells the story better than any really out there is that again and again the people need a Messiah. And that's what we're going to see beginning today. Now the book of Judges is happening roughly between the 15th and 11th century B.C. It gives this history of the people after Joshua has died through the time of Ruth up until the coronation of their first king, King Saul. And the writer here, you'll notice, as if you were to read this whole book, you would notice there's no, pen, there's no autograph given. 
But Jewish tradition is that it was the prophet Samuel who wrote Judges as well as Ruth and 1 Samuel. So there's a lot of, you could do more research on that. I'm holding to that. I like the, I have a tendency to hold to whatever the most ancient view is. That's kind of my go-to is if the people in the first century were saying this about Jesus or the rabbis were saying this about the book 3,000 years ago, I'm still feeling that. <laughs> I think they're probably the most accurate. So, Two verses in the book of Judges really reveal its entire theme. And we're going to repeat these again and again because this is really what the story's about. Judges chapter 2, it says, All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work He had done for Israel. That is the repetitive cycle. And then towards the end of the book, you get another theme. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, hopefully that verse, both of those verses, sound really familiar. Because that's the world that we live in. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Another generation arises and arises that don't know the Lord or the work He has done. That is the world we live in. And so I think you'll see so well that this has to do with us. Now, many may wonder this, why books like this one, or even in the Bible, why we should study them? Well, first of all, the similarities you're going to see here are, are, I think, plainly obvious. That the people of God coming into the promised land, rather than them affecting the people around them, the people around them affect them. And that's what you have so clearly in Christianity, is that oftentimes what we should be is a light and a witness to the world. It's the reverse, and the darkness penetrates who we should be. The canonization, if you will, of Israel and then now, the cultural breakdown of the church. Another reason, perhaps, is what Paul writes in Romans 15. He says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So Judges is written that we might have hope. And I'm thankful, I told somebody this before we even got started today, you know what I'm really thankful for? That I wasn't born then. Because I'm just as bad. I'm, a, I'm just as bad of a mess. I don't look at these people with judgment. I look at them with pity and go, that could have been me. And it will be me apart from Jesus. And so thank God for Him. We're reading it through the lens of Christ today. So the question we should be asking ourselves, and the title of this sermon that I think will be obvious in these first two chapters is, it's not so much that we could not do God's will, it's that we would not do it. That's the real question for you today. Is what are those things in your life that you know the Lord desires for you? Or has even asked of you? And your response is, I could not, I cannot. Rather than understanding the real problem is, I will not. It's a willpower problem, not a strength problem. And that's the struggle of the people of Israel that's the struggle today. So you begin to say things like this, and I bet, and this isn't meant, meant to discourage you or cut you down, but rather to get you thinking about a God who can overcome anything. That you would admit a couple things that you've probably said. Maybe even this week, you might have said something like this. I can't forgive. I can't forgive this. My father, my sister, my, my son, I can't forgive. My coworker. We have a tendency to say those words, I can't. But it's not I can't, it's I won't. I can't stop. I can't stop. This temptation is too great. This sin area has been my comfort for a decade. I can't. No, it's not I can't. God can. 
that you want. I can't trust. I can't quit. Throw those words in your own mind. What are those words that you've been saying? I want you to hear something encouraging today. God has already overcome it. He has already forgiven the greatest sins you can forgive. He has already overcome every temptation that besets man. You can, if you will. In these first two chapters of Judges, I pray you will see that just as Israel failed to fully trust God's promise and obey His word, the Lord allowed those enemies to oppress them. Yet, God was moved by their suffering. He raised up judges to save them. And He has done something far beyond that for, now, for us. He raised up the perfect judge to set us free. We can learn fully to trust God and obey God. And we'll see, I think, three times where God speaks here and those become three instructions for us to remember. So we're going to do a lot of reading today. Some of you have been at our church long enough to know I have a habit of actually reading the whole text. It takes time, and we're reading two chapters of Judges today. But I'm confident of this. This is fascinating stuff. Y'all remember when I, some of you remember when I read what they called the unpreachable chapter of Nehemiah? I read that whole chapter. It was like 500 names, and we did it together. I don't know if I should just say, well, we did it, or I think, I think the Lord blessed it. But here we go. I'm going to break this into bites, though. I'm going to take the first 20 verses, and then we'll discuss that together. Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Hey, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with them. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek simply means Lord of Bezek. Adonai sounds familiar to it. He's the king of Bezek. And this man, verse 6, fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Told you it was about to get real. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahaman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. Now, I'm, I'm guessing she must have been a looker because there were some takers. Verse 13, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. Now, deal with that as you will. It's in the, all in the family, apparently. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. 
And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, this is Jethro, if you look back into the Exodus. His father-in-law went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Geb near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah was also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had said. And he drove out from there its the, the th- three sons of Anak. All right, let's pause there. You'll notice I tried to give you some emphasis in the first but of this whole paragraph, of this whole stanza. What does it look like for us to learn to fully trust and obey God? Well, first it means remembering that the battle is the Lord's. That the battle is the Lord's. Now, there's some tough stuff just in these 20 verses, and I assure you Judges is going to get a whole lot harder to kind of work through. Here's a couple of facts. Joshua has passed away. There's a book just before Judges called Joshua. You can go through it and see in great detail what God did through through Joshua, who was really, in a sense, their first judge, if you will, although they weren't called that yet. But that's really what he was. Moses leads them through the Exodus. He gives it to Joshua. Joshua leads them on this amazing endeavor into the Promised Land. And there was great success with a few hiccups. But overall, Joshua's ministry was was wonderful and he honored God. And now he's dead. And this can be hard. I mean, this can be hard anytime the, the, the patriarch or the matriarch of a family passes away. Sometimes it leaves the family in complete disarray. It may have happened in some of your families. I noticed it somewhat in mine when my, when my nanny passed away. Just things changed. Sometimes churches suffer this way. When the, the founding pastor goes on, they can't seem to sustain it without him. And so this is what's now happened. Joshua's passed and the people at least take one good step. They say, well, God, what should we do? Who should go up? And the Lord is speaking and answering them. And this is fantastic. He says, Judah shall go up. Did y'all notice what Judah's very first move was? Hey, Simeon, you want to go with me? Now, I don't know. There's different commentation on this, whether that's good or bad. But it seems overall people lean towards God did not say Judah and Simeon go up. It says Judah go up. And Judah immediately has some fear or thinks he might need help. I think there's a real possibility because what we're going to read in the next piece is God does not have kind things to say about what we're seeing already taking place. Instead of saying, all right, God has said, and God has said, I will be with you. I will go before you. Judah's first words, Simeon, I might need some help. You don't need help. You just witnessed Jericho. 
You just witnessed it. This happens in Joshua. Do you know how much human effort was required? Zilch! Other than walk around and blow some trumpets. But you guys do that for fun. You didn't do anything amazing. God did it. You would think having just seen that, and yet the first thing, I might need some help. Now they do really good. If you kind of follow the story, and you might think, boy, it's not too gruesome except for this one weird part where there's thumbs and big toes getting cut off. What in the world is going on there? That is, just so you know, really not what we would call just war theory in modern times. I was a chaplain for 10 years. If people would have done that, they would have been dishonorably discharged and put in prison. This is not how we handle captives. And yet, look how he sees it. He sees it correctly. The very king himself, he says, God has repaid me. He understood he deserved this. This is very hard, I know, to understand, somewhat difficult to swallow. But this is what God has already said. If you go all the way back to Genesis, He makes this covenant with Abraham. And it's foreshadowing right away because what God does is this, this ancient custom of making a covenant would be to cut the animals in half and to walk through them. And I know that sounds graphic, but the reason they're doing that is to describe what would happen if we break the covenant. So you walk through it together saying, If we mess this up, we're going to be like these animals. That's the point. And yet the covenant God makes with Abraham is unique because he puts Abraham to sleep. And God is the only one to walk through, which means God is saying, not only am I going to uphold the covenant for my sake, but I'm going to uphold it for your sake, which is unique. And thankful we should be of this because we couldn't do it. We just flat out couldn't do it. And what he tells Abraham just after that is something that I'm sure was hard for him to hear. He says, your people, my children, they're going to be enslaved in a foreign land. Go back to Genesis 15. You can read this. You will be enslaved in a foreign land for 400 years until the sin of Canaan has reached its full measure. So if you want to judge God on this, he gave them 400 years to straighten up. I don't know how long you think people deserve. That's like five generations at least of people. He said, until it has reached its full measure, and then what? Then I'm going to use my people to judge them. And that's exactly what should be taking place here. Now, the people of God are not going to do it to his standard. But that's what happens with Adonai Bezek. God has repaid me. Look what he admits. I've been doing this. This, this big toe chopping thing, I've been doing it. I've done it to 70 kings. Now God's done it to me. And then you get this amazing story in the center of this first chapter. Of the daughter of Caleb. And this is what I love so much about the Bible in so many ways. Is that God doesn't use what you would think he would use to describe people of faith. Because if you look at this story, uh, you'll notice there's an outsider and Kenite, the father-in-law of Moses, not even the people of Israel. And he is being faithful to God, walking with the people into the Negev, this desert, difficult place. Who's there? The outsider. God says, that's faithful. And then he says, look what else is faithful. This, This little girl. Now, I know that story was a little confusing, but look at her faith. Unlike Judah, she says, hey, Dad, give me the springs. Grant me, grant, grant me a blessing. And you get this middle 
piece of faith where Caleb gets it right. And if you go back to Joshua, you go back even earlier to Moses, there was only two people that went into the promised land and said, hey, we can do it. There was ten who were afraid, and so God had to let them die in the wilderness. But Joshua and Caleb got to go in. And Caleb is an old man at this point. He says, I may be old, but I've still got a strong right arm. Give me the hills where the giants are. I want to be that dude. Like, I want to, Lord, can I still just have a good right arm? I've got a good right arm. I can throw a football a long ways, y'all. I hope I can keep it. Give me the hills. Give me the giants. Guess what he does? That very thing. There's faith in the midst of what is starting to break down. The faith of Aksa, the daughter. The faith of Othniel, who we're going to hear more about. This is foreshadowing. He's probably the best of all the judges. Because they really depreciate as time goes on. And then you get, you get this Kenite and Jethro. But then, verse 19, where the trouble begins. Did you see it? It says in verse 19... He, Judah, the nation, the tribe of Judah, could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now, from a military perspective, that makes a whole lot of sense. They walked in there and said, they got tanks. We got foot soldiers. This is a mismatch. We've got guys. And this is, just a, this is something for you to understand. This, this people go on to become what we know as the Philistines. They're going to have some dudes that we know like Goliath. You, hear the, you see the city Gath here described? That's where he's from, Goliath. And these people come with metal works. The Philistines were slightly more advanced than, than the Israelites. They had already developed some metal works. Here we have chariots of iron. This is like ancient primitive tanks. So they look at that and go, there's no way. And from a human perspective, they're totally right. But what about Jericho? But what about when I, when I dried up the Jordan River? What about when I dried up the Red Sea? What about the ten plagues? Look, it just wasn't that long ago that God did some things that make no sense. Why are we looking at these, these, these chariots of iron and going, we can't do it? Well, yeah, you can't do it. You missed it. God can. God can. The battle is the Lord's. So when we say things like, I can't forgive, I can't overcome, I can't do, you're right, you can't, but you've missed it. God can. And your faith is what saves you, not your strength. And God is strong in your weakness if you would allow it. If you would have simply the will to see that God is on the move, and when He tells you to go, when He tells you to overcome, He will do it by His strength, not yours. So don't be afraid. The battle is the Lord's. This is what we see in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It says, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. And you know, God's very interested in something. Certainly the salvation of man. Certainly that you would look more like Jesus every day. That, that He wants so much for you to be a person of great character. Not so much your comfort. But, but, but broader than all of that, God desires to be glorified. And He's going to do some amazing things if you'll follow Him. But His objective is not to make you look great. You might look great. I'll say, I go back and read some of these stories and go, wow, what amazing people of God. But the story tells something more. What an amazing God. And that's what he's interested in. So my friend, if you want to be great, then make God great. Make him the, 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 the centerpiece of your story. 
Put the spotlight on him. If the spotlight's on you right now, my friend, trouble comes and goes. You better just go ahead and turn it and put it on him. Now, it's interesting. We trust in all kinds of powers. I would, I would argue we trust in powers every single day that we don't really understand. But for some reason with God, we need all the details. When God says go, we say, but what about A, B, and C? Tell me the details. And yet, tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up and this thing's going to make a God-awful racket to wake me up. Do you know what? I have no idea how this thing works. I have no idea. There's a bunch of doodads in this thing that make it operate. And it's going to go off at 6.30 or whatever time I set it for tomorrow. And it's going to do it because somebody made it do it and it's got great power. And then, you know, I'm going to do this crazy thing. I'm going to get up and I'm going to turn this knob and hot water is going to hit me in the face. I have no idea how that really works. I've never thought about it. Some of you can do plumbing. That's great. Some of you know how to do these little pieces. Maybe you don't know how this works, but you know how a hot water heater works. I have no idea. I just turn a knob and praise God, hot water. Nothing better than a hot shower in the morning. I go reach into my refrigerator. No clue how that thing works and get milk out and cereal. I turn a key and I have no clue how any of that stuff works. In fact, I need not be anywhere near underneath your hood. I turn that key and I make progress and go places. I don't know how these things work. And then I get to my office and you get to yours and you open up a computer most of you have no clue how that works. There's a handful of you. And then I do these other things like I trust that my wife will go get the kids from school and we kind of have these details worked out. I trust that my wife is going to do what she says she's going to do, but I got to admit, that's a power I definitely don't understand. And she doesn't understand me fully. There's just so much we do every single day, every single moment of every day, and we trust that these things are going to work, and we never question them, and yet for some reason, the creator of all of this, we question his goodness, and we question whether or not he has the power. My goodness, he has way too much power. I don't know what he's telling you right now. Maybe you've got a list of could-nots. A list of can'ts. I want you to hear this. If you hear nothing else today, it's okay that you can. The question is, will you? Because God can. He absolutely can. Let's continue reading. And this is where the story starts to take a turn. Verse 21, it says, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of that city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all of his family go. And guess what that man did? That man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called it Luz. Daggone it. Thought we got rid of that city. Nope. That's its very name to this day. Verse 27. This is, this is something. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshain and its villages. Just so you know, Bethshain is where later on they're going to hang King Saul and his son on the castle walls. They should have gotten rid of that town. 
and its villages, or, or Tanakh and, and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ablem and its villages, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites, just they persisted. They persisted in dwelling. Hey, look, God, look, the, the, the people here are persistent. We couldn't do it. They're just too persistent. Verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, or, or so that the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject again to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon, Ahalab or Ixib or Helba or of Ephik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites, the worst is poor Dan, which is a weird tribe anyway. Where did Dan come from? Dan. They pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. For they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris and Ajalon and in Shalbim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upwards. A few more verses into chapter 2, it says this. This is God's response, finally, to all of this chaos. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and he said, I brought you up from Egypt I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And I shall make no covenant. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. All right, let's pause there. I know, you're pretty excited that I read all those names, got through all those city names. Yeah, that wasn't easy. Here's the second piece. We trust that the battle is the Lord's, but secondly, we remember that God's commands are for our good. God's commands are for our good. What is his accusation to them? Look at chapter 2, verse 2. His accusation is, you did not obey my voice. You did not do as I instructed. Now you've got all these tribes now going into the land. And Nate, you can go ahead and pop up this map for me. I know it's a little small. You can look these up. Look up online if you want the 12 tribes allotment in Israel. But all of this is north of of, of Judah. All of this is north of Jerusalem is what's going on here. And this is eventually going to be the ten tribes who are first taken by Assyria before Judah falls. And so 
You've got Benjamin here. You've got Joseph. You've got Manasseh, Ephraim. All of these. Now you'll notice nine of the twelve tribes were named. Two, two are left. Well, three are left out. Two on purpose. Reuben and Gad. They didn't come across the river. If you go back and read uh, and and. Moses' tale, and also into Joshua, they make a decision to keep on the side of that they'd already taken as they entered the promised land. So half-tribe of Manasseh, Reuben, and Gad, they all stay over there. Now, then you've got the tribe of Levi, and just so you know, the Levites don't get an allotment. They are the priestly class. They get allotments all over. <laughs> they kind of get free reign in the territory. So that's what's going on there. And then in verse What you see in all of these verses, this is eight times you see it say these words, and it's hard to miss. It says, did not drive out. Did not drive out. In fact, instead of driving them out, which was God's plan, for their good. Why? Because he already knew what they would do. If you leave these people here, they're going to retain their gods. You're going to fall prey to idolatry. Guess what happens? All of that. And not only this, you're going to make a new plan. And this is what we are starting to see unfold. Four times here it says they, were, they forced the Canaanites into forced labor. They took them now as slaves. That's not God's plan. That's not what He desired for them. So now Manasseh and Ephraim and some of these are looking at it going, well, well here's some cheap labor. Here's a good workforce. We should keep them around. And guess what they start to do? <laughs> They start to intermarry. They start to intermingle. They start to, to, to make their gods their gods and fall completely prey to idolatry. So what does God send? Verse 1, chapter 2. An angel of the Lord. Now in my study this week, there's a right many commentators that think this is the pre-incarnate Christ. That God comes, that Jesus comes here, described as the angel of the Lord. The true Savior and judge of Israel here, God himself. And then it says something strange, which you may have missed just glossing over it. It says, he came up from Gilgal to Bochum. Now, I got news for you. God does not simply reside in Gilgal. He, he is omnipresent. So why in the world does it say the angel came out of this really specific place where the people aren't at anymore? Well, this, this is for a reason. If you go back to Joshua chapter 5, you've got this city Gilgal where the people make a covenant with God. They make a covenant, and this city itself literally means to roll away. Gilgal means to roll away, and God says to them, Now I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt upon you. I have removed your sin. I have made a covenant with you. Gilgal is like this amazing place where the people get it totally right. And the angel of the Lord comes from that place to now this place called Bochum. And Bochum means weeping. The writer here is careful to say this. God goes from rolling away your oppression, rolling away this awful thing, to now a place of weeping. Why? Because the people did not obey. The people looked at the the plan of God at the end of the day and said, wait a minute, this is going to be kind of challenging. This is going to be kind of hard. And you know what? I've got some plans that might be just as good. We'll leave some of these people around. We'll put some of them to work. And poor Dan. Dan gets down in there and goes, wow, these people are so tough. We can't even go down into the hill. We're just going to stay in the hill country. And if you read the story of Dan, he just keeps getting driven out, out, out. Dan goes and picks a new possession way north that God didn't even give him. You've not obeyed my voice. Moses told Israel this. 
that loving and obeying God was for their own good. Deuteronomy 10, it says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases Him and love Him and serve Him with all your heart and soul. And you must always obey the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Now, I admit, there's, I could read this story in some different places and I know what kind of feedback I would get in certain audiences. I'd say, this is a really, this is a really violent God. This is a God that doesn't really care for people. This is a God who just wants this stuff for himself. And yet the story of Scripture is so much that he's trying to separate his people. He's trying to help them through the wilderness for their own good. And they can't see it. So it begs the question, I think, a question that we should be asking is, are God's plans good for me? Are his plans good for me? Do I really believe that? I got news. The world around you absolutely says, no, they're not good. They'll say, you'll hear this. It's very obvious if you just listen in that God's plans or God's way is archaic. It's chauvinistic. It's oppressive. And so that's why if you want to do this thing we call Christian marriage, you're not going to be super popular. By the world's standards, if you want to follow Ephesians chapter 5, God's plan is different than what most people think you should do. That the husband would be the head of the house as Christ is head of the church. Oh my goodness, I could say that in certain places and get, thrown, get things thrown at me. But it's in Ephesians chapter 5 that he would wash his wife with the word of God. People like to just chime in on that one part and go, Oh my goodness, it's just so masculine. And... No. Do you realize what it's saying? Christ died for the church. His, his job is, is way more difficult. That's Ephesians chapter 5. That's just one place. Do you trust God's plan for your purpose? Go and make disciples of all nations? Oh man, no. That can't be your success story. Your success story has got to have something to do with big house, white picket fence, big boat, right kids, right wife. I mean, no, wait a minute. That's not God's plan. God's plan could include that stuff. But it absolutely includes disciples who make disciples. What, do I trust that Jesus is the only way? We have trouble even in the church with that one. But wait a minute. What about my friend down the street who believes something totally different? He seems like a good person. He might be a good person. But here's the thing. God says none are good. Jesus says none are good. And he says in John 14, really clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, do you believe that? Are God's plans good for you? They're absolutely good for you. And the question is, do you believe it? Do you will it? Or do you continue to say, I can't, I want? Remember that the Lord's commands are always for your good. They're not to hurt you. They're not to limit your freedom. In fact, they're to set you free to finally be what God really made you to be. Let's read this last piece of chapter 2. Verse 6, it says, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance and to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua 
who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years old. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Haris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And here you go. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This is the story of Judges. Verse 11, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. And now, the book of Judges, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up Judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they <laughs> whored after other gods and bowed down to them. This, this one's rated M.A. Just, I'm going to go ahead and tell you from, from here on out, this is this 12-parter's M.A. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned right back, right back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left before when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. God bless the reading of his word today. Amen. <laughs> Sometimes it's harder to say amen. Here's the last. The last trust and obey comes through remembering that God has raised up Jesus to save us. Now that sounds almost like a stretch based on what I just read, but I'm, let me explain. Here's what happens to us. Don't separate yourself from this story. I beg of you. Don't look at this story and say, what a, bunch of, what a bunch of fools. What a mess. I don't serve Baal and Ashtaroth. And you're right. You can look around and go, I don't even know what Baal and Ashtaroth even are. So I'm good. And yet I would present to you, my friend, that idolatry takes many forms. That I would argue perhaps it's as easy to fall into idolatry now as ever before. You can do... Wondrous idolatry right here. 
so easy to fall prey to this. You don't have to call it Baal or Ashtaroth. It's still the same. And this is why the, the Ten Commandments say, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images. These things are at the front of the Ten Commandments because God knows us. You know what? He made us. And He knows He made us for worship. And if we're not going to worship Him, we're going to worship. You don't have to ever teach a child to worship. They do it. They'll come right out of the gate worshiping something. Barbie, video games, whatever. Maybe even mom and dad some. But they're not likely to worship God unless they're taught. And we're definitely not likely to worship Christ unless we fall to our knees before Him. Verse 10 is scary. Chapter 2, verse 10. Yet another generation comes up who did not know Him or follow Him. I want you to understand something, church, I find terrifying. Is that we are always just one generation away from apostasy. We're one generation away from no one knowing Jesus. All it's going to take is for you and I to make a decision. We're not going to obey the, the Great Commission this time. And if our whole generation does that, this whole group of people makes that decision, no one will know the Lord. So there's, there's certainly the sense that you could blame these people who fall into idolatry, but the blame somewhat goes to their fathers who did not instruct. <laughs> they knew what was right and did not teach it. They did not pass it on. My friend, if you're a parent today, your greatest mission is in your home. That's not even really in my notes today, but I got I to gotta tell you, I cannot reach your kids like you can. These teachers back here, they're teaching wonderful stories today about the Lord and the gospel is being presented week in and week out. But if they don't see it at home, they're going to think this is some kind of mythic, some kind of silly thing that we do on Sundays to waste time. Because when they come home, they see mommy and daddy. They're not living this out. So it makes no sense. There's this, this, this breakdown in what they see and what they know. Always one generation away. And they served idols. And the anger of the Lord was kindled. But guess what else? <laughs> this thing has presented itself. And I want to close with this thought, really. This amazing dilemma is presented here. In verses, really, verse 4 all the way through the end of chapter 2. The dilemma God has made for himself. This is, this is amazing. God makes this statement to his people, I will never break my covenant with you. However, if you break your covenant with me, you will be punished. There will be disciplinary action. So God has made for himself in the very covenant with Abraham where he passed through that on his own. He knew very well what was coming. That I'm going to make a covenant with these people of my love but also a covenant with these people of my holiness. And there's absolutely no way to work this out unless there's Jesus. There's absolutely no way to, to break down this contradiction unless God makes the decision to pay. I'm so thankful today for Jesus. I'm so thankful when I look at the nation of Israel and I go, that's me. I fall so easily to idols. It's so easy for me 
to be distracted by this world. And to, that, that, that my time with Christ in prayer and His Word would be so far in the back of my mind compared to, oh, I, I want to do this for my kids today. I want to, I want to have some time today to just enjoy life. I, and, and, and all of these things are fine. A lot of what I think, they're, they're fine things, and yet my, oh, my back burner is this Creator, this great God that I shove thousands of things in front of. So thankful today that God dealt with his love and holiness himself because I couldn't. That his love displayed itself on the cross for me and his holiness also poured out on that cross for me. He dealt with it himself. Do you see the glory of the gospel in this book? I do. It says in Acts chapter 4, No one else can save us. Indeed, we can be saved only by the power of the one named Jesus and not by any other person. Praise Christ. Will you learn to trust and obey the Lord today by remembering that the battle is His? Trusting in His power and not your own? By remembering His commands are for your good? Trusting His plans for you? And lastly, by remembering to depend on Jesus as your Savior, trusting in His provision for you. Not looking at all of this negativeness, this hard stuff, that the, the difficulty of forgiveness, the difficulty of temptation, the difficulty of sin. Not looking at all of that and going, I can't do it. But rather looking at it and going, Jesus did it. And by His strength and by His power, I will overcome. Let's pray together now, church. Heavenly Father, I thank you today for Christ. I thank you so much for Jesus, my Savior. Because there was absolutely nothing, nothing I could do to appease your holiness. And there was nothing I ever did to earn your love. In fact, far from it. It's baffling to me, really, that you would share such kindness and goodness to me. But that's who you are. And let me begin today by simply saying this. Dear Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. How great are you. How lovely, how honorable, how wonderful you are. And your mercy poured out upon us. That you would do something unique through the person of Jesus, even beyond what was begun here in the book of Judges, that you would begin to graft in somebody like me. I'm not Jewish. <laughs> I wouldn't have been there on the right side. And yet you brought us in by your love. And you saved us through your holiness. You didn't just do some small thing. <laughs> no, you died for us, that we would be free. Thank you. Thank you, God, for who you are. And all I can pray is, God, just help me to live a life worthy of that. Just help me to walk with you in such a way that I would seek to see you closer and know you better. Unlike these, these generations after generations who didn't know you or know the works that you've done. Lord, I want to know you. I want my prayer life to begin to look different every day. That it's less about my needs and more about, I just want to know my Savior. I just want to know this great God. And I know, I know at the end of the day, if I could just get to know you better, if I could just understand your purpose better for me, if I could really start to see your heart, not only for my life, but for those around me, 
I would catch a fresh vision. I would catch a fresh sense of, God, what you're up to and walk with you closer. That's what I really want. And I want that for your people, God. I recognize that we, we have to come to you with our many, our many sins and with our many needs. And that's good. But there's something even better that we would get to know you, the God of the universe. That's what I want. I want that for myself and for your people. God, would you do that? And I recognize today someone may have come here and they're still on the other side of this. That the gift of God's love and the gift of God's mercy has already been poured out. And yet, we receive it by faith. It can't be simply something that's true or something we know. It has to be something we believe and stake our life in. And if that's you today, you're recognizing that today, that you need Christ. That the gift of salvation, you want it for yourself. If that's you, pray with me. As it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. God has made provision for you. Pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I believe that you are my Lord and Savior. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, my guilt, my shame, my brokenness, You paid for it. Jesus, I believe that you took on the holiness of God on yourself for my sake. I believe that today. I'm so thankful for you, Lord Jesus. And God, I believe that you raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I believe in the cross and the resurrection. That gives me hope for living today and hope for living everlasting. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the provision of Jesus. And I'm asking now, would you guide my life? I want to live different. I want you to instill in me the desire to be, the, be like the character of Christ rather than whatever comfort or whatever other purpose I thought I had. Dear friend, if you prayed that, welcome to the family of God. And we're praying that last piece Well, really the whole thing we're praying with you all all in all. Every day I'm reminded, Jesus, you are Lord and Savior. I know you're my Savior. Every day I've got to return to you being Lord. So I have a sense often that I want to get on the throne myself or put some other idol there. Jesus, you are Lord afresh today. And we're asking, guide us. Show us yourself. Reveal yourself in prayer and in your word. In such a way that we cannot miss you and where you're moving. And help us to be more dependent on you in everything. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.